you uh, have reached the end of our program. I just did the... <laughs> you have wasted another 60 minutes of life that you're not going to get back. I did. I did exactly that. So that's the end of our program. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why I cannot eat spicy foods in public. So we are we are doing a, a an episode today on eating spicy foods. You guys both like spicy food, right? I love, I love spicy it. foods. Oh, yeah, the more the better. I I enjoy spicy food as well, but I cannot eat them around other people. Why not? Because I sweat profusely, like profusely, like in a really. Yeah, it's it's disgusting, and so. But I really enjoy spicy food, so I I will often get it when I'm traveling and I'm eating by myself in my hotel room, and that is pretty much it. I, I have a similar reaction. I, if I eat spicy foods, I hiccup. Really, I do. Oh. Yeah. So it's so bizarre because it you know as it goes down, it's probably you know irritating the phrenic nerve, and I get I get I get hiccups. Wow, it's really weird. But I love. Spicy I've never food. heard of it. I love spicy food. Yeah, I knew you both did, so I thought this would be a good episode. Anyway, I am <laughs> Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. I am here with Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Matthew. And Dr. Don Thea, also from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Don. Hey there, Matt. Hey there, Chris. And uh, as a reminder to everyone, if you could go over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's BU's hub for lifelong learning. We will find lots of really interesting population health tools and, and courses and things like that. And also, it's been a long time since we've gotten a new rating on iTunes or Stitcher or anything like that. And we we would love, it would boost our spirits for you to Go on over there and, and give us a rating. So if you if you would take the time, we would love that. You could give us five so, chili peppers and, and say that we are muy caliente. Muy caliente. Oh, shoot. Matt, Matt what do you think about the idea of, um, you know, in Netflix, when you watch a series, there's a button that appears in the lower right-hand corner that says skip intro? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we could do that for these spot. Nick, maybe you can set so, that up for us. So he uh, can. So he the can. same thing every week. So he can actually, and I have to say my favorite podcasts do this. So there are there are ways that you can put in bookmarks for different segments and you, that allows yeah. people to jump ahead. And yeah, if we yeah. could do that, I would I would totally be in favor. But I yeah. have to say every time I do it, I wonder like, did I did I miss something good? You know? <laughs> so anyway. So now now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're gonna look at a study on Spicy food consumption and the risk of gastrointestinal cancers. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we'll talk about public health messaging in the era of social media. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud. Or I'm hoping at some point Don's going to give us an update on the Ig Nobel Awards. Oh, yeah. Do, uh, they, I don't have, do maybe, they, maybe next time. I don't have it um, offhand right now. Well, but. Are they still happening in the COVID era? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. They had them um, this fall, last fall. All right, because I heard a, I heard an interview the other day with somebody who won an Ig Nobel Award, and I was, uh, I you was it it made me think of you. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so let's get into it. Segment one. So the article we're going to look at today is on the relationship between eating spicy foods and the risk of gastrointestinal cancer, published in the International Journal of Epidemiology, one of my favorites and one that we don't go to too often. It was entitled Spicy Food Consumption and the Risk of Gastrointestinal Tract Cancer's Findings from the China Kaduri Biobank by first author Wing Ching Chan of the Nuffield Department of Population Health in the University of Oxford. So this one did not get a lot of media coverage. It was just one that we were particularly interested in. So I can't give you the headlines on this one. But Don, can you walk us through this study? Yeah, sure, Matt. So this was a very large prospective cohort study. And this particular report is a follow-on to a prior report that the same authors published in BMJ in 2015. And and the, the structure of that study is very similar to this study, and I'll get into that in a little bit more detail. But what that study found was that there was, cut to the chase, there was an inverse relationship between the frequency and intensity of spicy food consumption and all-cause mortality, with a particular effect on cardiovascular disease, cancer, and respiratory disease. And they turn back to cancer, gastrointestinal cancer, in part because GI cancer is particularly prevalent in Asia and specifically in China. And it, I think globally, it's about one-fifth of all cancer deaths, and the rates in China are particularly high, and they, they comprise over half of the global burden of these two kinds of cancers, esophageal and stomach cancer. And it's interesting because the cancer that, that develops in China seems to be categorically different than the, than the GI cancer that occurs elsewhere. Most of the GI cancer in China is squamous cell carcinoma, whereas for the rest of the world, it's adenocarcinoma. And that may seem a little esoteric, but those are really two different cell types, both of which obviously exist in the GI tract. So there's something weird about Mm. what's happening in China with respect to that kind of cancer. They state that they have a biologic basis, they think, uh, or hypothesis for what might be the active ingredients in the spicy food, and that is capacin, which is essentially what is in chili and what makes your mouth burn. Um, and what tastes so good when you eat uh, spicy foods. And there's a little bit of evidence, both in vitro and in animal models, to, to suggest that there is a relationship between the consumption of spicy foods and cancer, except the prior work kind of was all over the place. There were some experiments that showed that there was an increased effect on these outcomes, and others showed a decreased effect on these outcomes. So what these authors did was to sort of hone in on these, these GI cancers. So Matt mentioned the China Kadori Biobank, which is a which is the the overall study from which these data were abstracted, and that is a prospective cohort of 512,000 people in five urban and five rural areas within China. Between 2004 and 2008, they recruited these 512,000 people between the ages of 30 and 79. Um, with the intent of following them for 10 years. And uh, they did a baseline assessment where they did sort of, they collected the usual information in terms of socioeconomic status, medical history, diet, lifestyle, and they took a blood sample. And then they did resurveys where they brought these same people back after baseline in late 2008 and 2013 among, uh, actually it was a subsection, that was 5% of those subjects who were surviving at those later 
time points. At the baseline and at those um, revisits, they they gave a uh, they, they gave them a questionnaire and asked the question about spicy food consumption. Prior research had looked at spicy food consumption, and they they really didn't they, they really didn't break it down into they broke it down basically into two groups. And the intent here was to break it down into more groups so that there's sort of more discriminating power in terms of the these these risk factors. So they asked they categorized the spicy food consumption into never. Only occasionally, one to two days per week, three to five days per week, and six to seven days per week. And they called the six to seven days per week regular consumers. And they also asked the age at which they started consuming spicy foods so they could get an idea of what sort of the lifelong consumption of spicy foods was up until that that point. They also, five months after the baseline, brought a thousand people back and asked them similar questions and looked for concordance to see if the baseline data were actually reproducible. And then they they followed them up for 10 years and they had this extensive linkage with all sorts of uh, medical records and insurance records that they have in China. So they were able to actually get outcomes for a large proportion of these individuals. If they were in the, the, the cohort and they had a history of cancer, they were excluded and there were about 2,500 of those. And of the of all the people that were uh, in this 512,000 Individuals, there were only 36 people who ha- who claimed to have no spicy food consumption. I think that was a little wild. That I did was, too. Was only 30. I mean, my goodness, that is that is quite a uh, tiny number. And so what they did is they did a Cox survival analysis and to determine the hazard ratio for the development of cancer by baseline report or report at baseline of spicy food consumption. They did some stratification by age and sex, and they adjusted for family history of cancer, education, household income, smoking, alcohol, activity, diet, including fruits, meats, and other potential contributors to the development of GI cancer. They also did a subgroup analysis by high and low cancer incidence areas in China, and they did some sensitivity analyses um, to exclude history of peptic ulcer, which can be a precancerous lesion in some people, prior chronic disease. And they also excluded the first three years of follow-up in some of these sensitivity analyses to try to deal with the issue of reverse causality. Before you go on, I mean, it was, it was something that caught my attention, and you mentioned it as well, this issue about reverse causality. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I was trying to wrap my head around that because I can't imagine that chili peppers, I mean, that, that, that stomach cancer causes chili pepper consumption. But I could imagine that chili peppers cause stomach cancer. So when they t- we usually when we talk about reverse causality, we're, we're thinking about sort of an ambiguous, you know, uh, sort of causal network. But I don't see the reverse that ch- that stomach cancer would cause consumption of chili peppers. So wh- what do they mean when they say reverse causality here? Well, I, I think they mean precisely that. That was my reading, and that though you don't think that there's a relationship between the consumption of chili peppers and stomach cancer there may be there may there may still be one and it could be that they don't stomach cancer doesn't predispose to consuming more chili peppers maybe it predisposes to consuming to a less. lot less yeah, yeah. That could be so true. i mean it could go in either direction so i think their thinking was well let's just take that out of the equation altogether and not let that sully the the evaluation let's focus on the the latter no it's 7 years of the uh, yeah. the follow up Okay, so that totally makes that? sense to me. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. So I, I apologize for interrupting, but I, I felt like that was, that was such an interesting thing that they mentioned early on in their methods. 
and I and I was hoping that we would just you know we, when it came up that we would discuss it a bit further. So thank mm-hmm. you, well, Matt. Matt, I, I recall seeing this before in, in uh, one or another observational cohort studies that we that we've covered on this podcast. Do you recall reverse causation? Well, where they did the same thing to deal with reverse causality. Yeah, no, this is a, this is a pretty common approach to trying to deal with reverse causation. I mean, sorting out the timing order, and 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 this is actually a, an issue that I do want to come back to. But sorting out the timing order is critical for establishing causation. Knowing something comes before something else doesn't mean it causes something else. But if you know it came after, you know it can't cause. And therefore, you know these sort of sub analyses or, or sensitivity analyses where you exclude anything that might be later in time than the exposure just seems to to make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, prior to the exposure. Prior to the exposure, right. Right. All right. So about 30% of the, the group reported consuming spicy foods six days a week, and 33% reported consuming spicy foods rarely. So it was a, it was a pretty evenly split between the two groups. The, the spicy intake was increased, was more with males, younger people, more wealthy people. And interestingly, I didn't, I didn't really understand the connection here, but smokers and alcohol users tended to eat spicy food mm-hmm. more frequently. And also the people with a higher BMI, probably because they just like to eat. There were 5.1 million years of follow-up with 20,000 cancer diagnoses and an incidence of between 40 and 60 per 100,000 person years of cancer. And their bottom line, their adjusted findings found that the frequency of spicy food inversely was associated with cancer. And the hazard ratio for esophageal cancer was 0.88, 0. 0.76, 0. 0.84, 0. 0.81 for spicy food consumption one to two days a week, three to five days a week, six to seven days a week. So it seemed like it was a relationship that was stable, fairly stable across the levels of spicy food consumption. And that was the same, though it was less pronounced and less significant for both gastric and colon cancer. And they they also reported a significant relationship in, in the same direction between esophageal cancer mortality but I think it wasn't frequent enough to find the, come to the same findings for the other cancers. But the greatest benefit was in the non-smoking and the non-drinking population. Interesting. Well, I suppose that sort of stands to reason, mm-hmm. since there's probably, you know, smoking and drinking contribute a, a higher baseline of, of cancers uh, to those. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of the bottom line. So um, it looks like spicy food is going to protect you from uh, esophageal GI cancer. It's, it certainly looks like that on the surface. Yeah. So, Chris, Chris, you want to – I know you have a, a certain feeling about dietary studies in general, so let's see if this fits the pattern. But what were your thoughts? Well, yeah, actually, I mean, this is, this is sort of a fascinating one because most of the studies we've looked at are, you know, food X causing disease Y. And mm-hmm. here we have the reverse where food X seems to be protective against disease Y. In fact, X, Y, and Z because we're looking at three different – locations of gastrointestinal cancer, stomach and esophageal and colorectal. So I, I thought that, you know, I was thinking to myself as I was standing in the shower, does this change my, my fundamental distrust of dietary studies? Because in this case, they found a protective effect rather than a harmful effect. And I, and I, I decided that to be fair, I should not allow that to be the case, even though I mm. love chili peppers and would love for this research to be true. Because, you know, my, my mom was always ragging on me about, like, drinking too much Tabasco sauce on everything, and she's going to, you know, you're going to kill your taste buds and rot your stomach out. And, and you know, that's, you know, that's, you know, mom talk. So, 
So, sorry, just to, just to clarify here, you you drink Tabasco sauce? Well, you know, I, 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 I love Tabasco sauce and I put it on a lot of foods. So, wow. you know, I, I, I consume a lot of Tabasco sauce. Okay. Wow. okay. So, therefore, my bias is that I want this to be true, that it's protective. I thought it was sort of fascinating, though, that the, you know, the general assumption in the literature, which I guess is probably widespread, is that because chilies cause this sort of burning sensation in your mouth, that they're therefore causing a burning reaction in your body, which is which is not true, right? The two are, are delinked. And, and one sort of interesting fact that I just want to put out there is that, is, is that birds cannot taste capsaicin, mm. whereas rodents do. So there's this sort of theory that the reason that chilies exist and are spicy and capsaicin is found in them in different quantities is to discourage the consumption of, of chili peppers by rodents and to encourage the consumption of chili peppers by birds, which then scatter the seeds over a much wider area. And because birds don't have teeth, they don't destroy the seeds in the process of eating them like a, a squirrel might. I, I feel like you um, you talked about this in one of your, your yeah, amazing I amusements. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think it's sort of an intriguing theory. So anyway, a couple of thoughts about the, the, the study. So I think, you know, the study actually had some some strengths and, and, I, I, and I came away somewhat persuaded by it. And I'll just name the things that I thought were, were important. One is that, you know, this was obviously a prospective cohort. So it's a, it's a far superior design than most of the literature on this subject, which is case control studies. So, you know, this is a big step forward. Of course, the sample size was huge with a good deal of follow-up. So that was important. I thought that the, the dose response effect was maybe the most persuasive part of this, you know, which was present for all three different kinds of cancers. But interestingly, seemed to be far less prominent when you put in either smoking or alcohol use into the equation, in which case the relationship became rather flat. And I, I was trying to sort of understand w why that would be. And one thought is that the, the effect of capsaicin, if there is one, is relatively subtle, whereas mm -hmm. the effect of alcohol and, and smoking is likely to be huge. And so we, we're going to a different scale. But I'm not sure if the, if the data really can tell us that because it was all sort of in relative terms. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, it, it made me wonder if that would explain this. You know, early in the paper, they talk about the biological plausibility of, of capsaicin being an anti-cancer product or compound. And so I suppose that might be true. But, you know, if someone else wrote this introduction, they'd say they, they'd emphasize the cancer-promoting uh, effects of capsaicin. So the, I think, the, you know, the evidence is totally ambiguous as to what that would be as sort of a biological underpinning. And then, you know, this whole issue of causality. I think we're, we're, still not, we're still not in the clear here. And particularly for the esophageal cancers, I felt like the, the big elephant that was sort of ignored in the back of the room was H. pylori, you know, which we, we know is one of the major driving, probably one of the most important driving forces of esophageal cancer and stomach cancer that we know of. Now, that would not explain the same relationship with, with the colorectal cancers, because I, I don't mm. think that anyone has claimed a relationship between H. pylori and, and, and uh, colon cancer. But for esophageal and stomach cancer, that, that is definitely on the table. And that wasn't really addressed here. Mm -hmm. You know, while Dom was talking you, you know, and, and summarizing the statistics, you, you said that the, the cancer rate was something like 40 per 100,000 or something, which is really high. And I looked Person up in years, the U.S., yeah. it's 700,000 in, in men and women in the United States. So we're talking six-fold higher rates in Asia. And that could be genetics or it could be systematic exposure to H. pylori or other factors such as smoking and alcohol. 
So I don't know. I, I felt like that that was sort of missing here as possibly mm-hmm. a more important one. And and there I could see like if you had H. pylori associated peptic ulcer disease or H. pylori associated esophagitis, would you be far less likely to consume chili peppers because it hurts? And the answer is probably yes. Yeah. You know, so, so yeah, that, that's a really that good felt point, to me Chris. like you know, you know, because it hurts. Like I know that sometimes when you get a little bit of stomach upset, and if you have a bowl of spicy soup, that is not the thing to make you feel better. No. So I, I, I wondered if that might be uh, might be part of this. And beyond that, I, I was really curious to hear from you, Matt, in terms of when you think about you know causal inferences. How did you view this study in terms of like sort of creating a logic structure that would get you from A to Z here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let me let me jump in because you raised a number of points that I wanted to to hit on and I think they are worth going back to. So I you know, I think I have come to the the general conclusion beyond some major things that we know about about diet that I am probably never ever going to be completely convinced that you know there are some dietary factor is causally related to some outcome outside of a trial because we've just, you know, we've hit on this so many times that there are problems, but I do think it is helpful in getting us to some preliminary evidence that might be useful in in trying to design a trial if you ever wanted to do that. And we have talked about all the kinds of reasons why dietary trials are really problematic and you're not really trialing the, you know, the one substance that you're trying to isolate specifically, you're trying to, you know, more determine whether or not we can influence people's diets, but leave that aside. What, one of the things we've talked about sort of vaguely a couple of times is Hill's criteria. And I have, you know, referenced that I'm not a, I, I don't dislike Hill's criteria, but I'm not a huge fan of, of Hill's criteria either. But I thought this was an interesting case where we might want to actually talk about it a little bit. So Hill's criteria, this is uh, Sir Austin Bradford Hill's criteria that he talked about that you could use to start to think about causation. And this was in the in the 1960s in relation to smoking and lung cancer. So he laid out a bunch of criteria. I, I'll go through just a few of them. So he talked about strength, consistency, specificity, temporality, biologic gradient, plausibility, coherence. So let me just go back through those. So strength, meaning bigger effects would be less likely to be explained away by confounding, which is an interesting one. But of course, there are some really good examples of cases where strength of effect is explained away by confounding. But, you know, in this case, you're you're not talking about a tiny effect, but you're not also talking about a massive effect. And so it sort of leaves you up in the air as to whether or not this even fits the bill. Consistency are, are results consistent across, you know, time and place. And I would also add studies. And here we don't have that because, as you pointed out, the previous studies have suggested a harmful effect. I don't know that that, though, really needs to be taken into account here because we do think that while I would I would disagree with the idea that that prospective studies are always better than case control studies in this case I do think that is the case and so you know the fact that there we don't have consistency here doesn't doesn't bother me specificity that one exposure causes one outcome I think we can throw that one out I think that's a relic from infectious diseases temporality the exposure has to come before the outcome that's what we were talking about in relation to their sensitivity analysis. And there, I think you have, you know, they've done a nice job of at least paying attention to this. Can you completely exclude reverse causation? I don't think so, but I think they've done a nice job with that one. So then the last two that we'll talk about are biologic gradient and plausibility. So biologic gradient, 
meaning more of the exposure should lead to more of the outcome, less of the exposure should be less of the outcome. And there, I don't know, I'm, I'm less convinced. I mean, you're right that they saw a bit of a dose response here in that, you know, sort of the more spicy food, there was a little bit more of an effect, but not a lot and not enough that I wouldn't be convinced that this isn't, you know, just sort of looking at random error. In addition to which, you know, if you have confounding, if the exposure, spicy food consumption, is strongly related to some other factor that has a dose-response relationship, you're going to see a dose-response relationship in the relationship to spicy food consumption. And so, you know, I don't know that I'm I'm totally sold just because I see a dose response, though it, you know, you certainly want to see that. Of course, there are cases where causation does exist without a dose response relationship, but it's, you know, it's sort of helpful. And then the last one is is essentially plausibility. You know, does it fit with what we previously know? And there we're sort of stuck, right? Because as you said, Don and, and Chris, that we have reason to believe, you know, from, from evidence from lab studies that that this could be both harmful or protective. So we're, we're kind of left up in the air a bit. And that's, you know, where I fall on Hill's criteria. They're sort of interesting, but I don't think they get us all of the way there. So that's sort of my take on it. Don, what's, what was your overall take on this study? Yeah, I, 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 I like Chris's synthesis and the H. pylori and the esophageal um, irritation argument, because I think that makes, mm. that potentially makes a lot of sense. And, and, and really to, to, to speak to the dose response issue that you just brought up, Matt, you know, looking at the hazard ratios by frequency of consumption from from relatively infrequent once one day per week to very frequent six to seven days per week, the hazard ratios were 0 0.88, 0 0.76, 0 0.84, and 0.81. I don't see yeah. a trend there. That to yeah. me is not a trend. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, it it maybe there's there's something else going on there, but. And I still, you know, we have talked about this before in terms of nutritional studies. I still fundamentally have a lot, a deep-seated lack of trust in assessing the dietary habits at baseline and inferring that those dietary habits remain intact for the duration of a 10-year period of observation. Hmm. And I think that that's kind of the Achilles heel of a lot of uh, a lot of these nutrition studies you know it's 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 a matter of you know was was there really um, fidelity over the course of the observation period to what what were the data sets that that gave you those those stratifications and you know people change over the course of 10 yep. years sure so i think that that you know i think that that's 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 a real problem with all nutrition studies including this one yeah, I, I suppose I would say in, in defense of nutrition studies, I guess if I were trying to defend them, which I don't want to be in the position of doing, I think the response would probably be, unless you can come up with a reason why diet would change differentially in relation to your outcome, then probably we're dealing with mostly non-differential misclassification, which generally, not always, but generally leads towards attenuation of effects. So you know, if we're seeing a signal there may in fact be a bigger signal, but it's not a great defense. So I'm not, you know, I, I share your concern, Don, is what I'm saying, but I, I, I do want to be fair to them. The only other thing I would raise is, is the confounding issue, which we always talk about, you know, Chris's uh, roof racks and Subaru's issue that we always go back to with dietary studies. This one kind of puzzled me a little bit because, you know, when you, the smoking and drinking thing was, was a little weird to me in that, 
you know, the effect was was different across smokers and drinkers. That 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 I buy. That you know, for reasons that Chris brought up, it's entirely plausible that you know smoking and drinking have such a big effect that we're not looking at. We're only seeing the sort of leftover susceptibility. In addition to which, we're only looking on the relative scale, which I don't think is the right scale. But but in terms of confounding, you would expect given what you told us, Don, that smoking and drinking were associated with spicy foods and smoking and drinking are bad for you in terms of GI cancers, that you would expect that would create upward bias, meaning you would expect to see that, I would say, that smoking and, that, that sorry, that uh, spicy food consumption would be increased in risk related to increased risk of, of GI cancers in crude analyses and yet we see a protective effect. Now, maybe that's why the case control studies did see it and they didn't. But even in their crude analyses here, they saw protective effects. So, you know, that doesn't totally explain everything away, but it just seemed a little odd to me. I, I would like to add one more thing to, to this mix, which is that, that unlike many of the dietary studies we've looked at, the, a, a distinguishing feature, feature here is that chili peppers are primarily a condiment as opposed to a main minute meal. People do not sit down and eat a bowl of chilies. Apparently you do. <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, I mean, you, you, you splashed all of your eggs at breakfast, you put it on your sandwich at lunch, and you put it on your chicken at dinner, but it, it's a condiment, right? So it, it pairs with something else. So and not all foods pair. So like if I, if I gave you, you know, a set of study data and said ketchup is associated with obesity, you'd probably come back and say, well, isn't that because people eat a lot more hamburgers? which is what makes them fat. It's not the ketchup. Ketchup is a confounder. So in the same way, is chili pepper not a confounder for what you are eating with it? Because chili pepper doesn't pair with everything. So what are you You're, not eating preferentially or eating preferentially as a consequence of chili pepper consumption? You are asking the wrong person on that one as, a, as someone who can't eat a lot of spicy food. I, I don't know the answer to that one. People don't put it on their ice cream, right? You don't put it on your peanut butter sandwich. I, I, I wouldn't. But I don't want to judge people who do. You put it on buffalo wings. It tastes no. great. But so no. what are you eating or not eating because as a proxy of, of your condiment here? Well, Chris, you're, you're you're drawing an analogy with an American diet. You know, think think about think about Chinese food. Think about how it's you know it it, it it's a completely different cuisine, and it, you know it's it's used fairly ubiquitously in Chinese mm. food, like it is with Indian food. So it's it's not a matter of ice cream and hamburgers. Well, I know, but I think I think that the, it you know ketchup is ubiquitous in the United States, but still ketchup ketchup is a is a marker for other things. It's like it goes well with hamburgers, it goes well with fries, it goes well on eggs. Yeah, um, yeah. but there are a bunch it's of things that don't put ketchup on. Right, you know, and so yeah. you know, is are chili peppers in the same way a marker for certain kinds of diets in China, which might themselves be you know higher or lower fat, and maybe that you know we we believe that that adiposity and the fat contents of foods has a, has a relationship with cancer. And I, I don't know if I totally believe it, but it is, it has been said. So, you know, there is another, another potential weakness here, mm -hmm. which is they didn't really look to see were the diets of these people based on high and low chili peppers systematically different or yeah. the same. That, that, yeah, I don't know that I totally agree with the, the idea that it, it is alone, you know, sort of a, a more, potent confounder than others. But I do take your point that I don't see a lot in here suggesting that they were able to do a lot of control for other nutritional factors that 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 could be or particular food. So yeah. Any uh, any last words before we, we move on from this one? 
Only that I went to a Chinese Sichuan res restaurant in Beijing many years ago with, with our colleague Laura Sabin. And the Sichuan food is famous for being really spicy in China. And, and indeed, every dish we ate was very, very spicy. And then like the coup de grace was a big bowl of chili peppers with pieces of chicken in it. But it was like a ratio <laughs> of 10 chilies per chunk of chicken. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I think it was visual, like nobody actually ate the chilies, but you look at this thing and you're like, oh my God, who could eat yeah. that? So, so <laughs> ice cream and hamburgers nowhere in sight on the table, right, Chris? There weren't any, no, not at that, not, not, not at that feast. Yeah. All right. Well, b before we move on, I do want to, there is one thing that caught my attention here and kind of annoyed me and it may just be because I'm reading this in the middle of winter, but did you notice that they used the floating absolute risk method for to calculate their confidence intervals? I didn't. And oh, to, yeah, I jumped me, right the, on that. To me, the, the floating method, that's more of a summer thing that you do in the pool. I mean, that's not a, that's not a winter <laughs> data analysis approach. You should use the iceberg uh, method. Yeah. Or the skating method. The skating <laughs> method. There you go. All right. So let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about public health messaging in the era of social media. And we're, we're talking about this in relation to a an opinion piece or a commentary, I don't know what you'd refer to it as, In it was published in JAMA. And I think this wasn't specifically about COVID, although I think it has a lot of implications for COVID. The comment was by Raina Merchant et al., published, you know, just very recently. And essentially, you know, it sort of gives the the history of, you know, how we've done public health messaging over time and how we need to adapt to the era of social media. So we sort of started off in the era of word of mouth communication. Then we transitioned to radio and television. And now we're sort of in the era where people get a lot more of their information from social media and, and, and online platforms. And these platforms are becoming more and more sophisticated and targeted and therefore you know, we want to be thinking about how we use these to influence public health if we think that it is our job to influence public health as opposed to just to inform people as to what might lead to better health. That's a probably a separate discussion. So they they explore the following four strategies to advance public health messaging in the, you know, now in the COVID crisis, but in the future. So they talk about deploying countermeasures for misinformation, surveillance of digital data to inform messaging, partnering with trusted messengers, and promoting equity through messaging. So when I looked at this, so the first one, deploying countermeasures for information, essentially saying that we know that there's lots of misinformation that is propagated through social media. So we as public health professionals need to do our best to counter those measures of misinformation. We know, of course, that is incredibly difficult to do, but she talked about the the find and replace approach, meaning essentially we, we want to find misinformation and then replace it with good information as quickly as we possibly can. And we need to do that in large numbers because we know it takes many, many more posts which refute a piece of information than it does to actually spread misinformation. And so we have to work on that really, you know, aggressively. And the second is using digital, you know, social media information to surveil what's going on, how our public health messaging is getting out there and evaluating how well it's doing. We should be partnering with trusted messengers. So we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes where we talked about you know, using public health 
in micro influencers. So we should be partnering with people to get them to help us spread the messages. And then obviously equity is an important goal. We want to get those messages to everyone. So I read this commentary and I was excited to read it, but ultimately I found it a little dissatisfying in the sense that, you know, partnering with trusted health, you know, trusted messengers, absolutely sure we should do that. Promoting health equity, I'm all in favor of that goal 100%. Should we be using public health uh, sorry, should we be using digital media as a way to try and determine whether or not our public health messaging is effective? Absolutely. Do I think that we are good at countering misinformation? No, I don't. And therefore, I don't know that I came away with this feeling like I had my marching orders for how we we do better. You know, I felt like the last one seemed like, you know, just sort of things that we would probably all agree with. And the first two seemed either, either, you know, challenging or don't get us very far beyond what we're doing already. So I wondered if you guys had any thoughts on this, any reactions, and whether you think that we're really going far enough in using, using social media to, to deploy public health messaging effectively. Either of you guys want to weigh in? Yeah, can I weigh in? I, I was really kind of moved by, not moved by, but the first section on misinformation really sort of got my brain going in terms mm. of, of, of where we are. And it really, it really struck me that, you know, I think that we're, we're kind of at an inflection point at, at this stage where misinformation has become so powerful and so determinative and influential that it's gotten to a crisis and mm-hmm. that we especially, you know, with respect to the prior administration and the big lie and COVID and anti-vaxxers and the potency of the theories and the misinformation to traverse the internet through social media is so much more powerful, I think, has been established than Mm -hmm. the the degree to which truth goes across the internet. And I think that uh, my my sense is that there's a national discussion that is beginning to bubble up in terms Mm -hmm. of how to deal with this, how, you know, Congress is now thinking about how, how do we, to a certain extent, change, influence a change in the business model for these social media organizations. Europe, the, the European Union has taken a, a real lead in this. And it may be that we are really going to have to change our fundamental conceptions of, of privacy and mm-hmm. our fundamental conceptions of free speech. And then the last thing that I think is a little self-serving, but disheartening as a public health professional, and it's co- it's sort of the, the democratization of information on the internet, because you have almost infinite power to be able to scrape the internet, get information, package it in a way that appears to make sense on the surface, but because you don't have the benefit of 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 experience or expertise, you to a certain extent become a very attractive, potentially false prophet. And mm-hmm. I think that that has been compounded even more so by the prior administration in, in terms of the delegitimization of expertise. And so all of this stuff, I think, is, is sort of coming to a perfect storm. And and hopefully enough people are are really concerned about this and see the the extensive damage that is being done because of this, so that we will begin to really rethink some 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 core. Th- inputs into this social social network dilemma. I agree. I, I, I you know, we were, we were speaking offline right before the episode, 
but all three of us had watched this documentary, the, the social dilemma, which, you know, on Netflix, on Netflix, which was basically a, a chilling piece of, of essentially investigative reporting based on the testimony of a group of programmers who have formerly worked for Google or Facebook or Apple or any of these sort of organizations. And high-level high founders of these organizations. So they were there at, and they knew what the intent was in building these business models. Including the guy whose job was to monetize Facebook. Right. Who right. talks about, well, this is how we monetize Facebook. And it, and it all comes down to the use and collation of metadata. Right. So every time you click on anything or like something or look at an, an image, you know, all of that is tracked, including how long you look. And so all, behind the scenes, all of this information is being collected about you at all times. And that is how the Facebook feed or the YouTube video suggestion algorithm works is by looking at you in aggregate based on, you know, not, you know, age, sex and race, which is what we think of as being like your demographic features. But really, all of this sort of tens of thousands of little tiny micro clicks that tell actually a lot more about you. And I don't think anybody really realizes that's how it worked. And one of the, you know, the two quotes that came out of this documentary that I thought were really powerful were one, this was a professor at the Harvard Business School uh, who said, you know, if, if you are not paying for the product, that's because you are the product. Right. And I was like, wow, that. You know, that actually tells it all is that we are the commodity. We are not purchasers of Facebook. Facebook is free to us. And that's because we are valuable to someone else in ways that we don't see. And and that leads to the, the second sort of interesting observation they made here is that like when Donthea looks up, you know, purple spot syndrome on Wikipedia. I look up purple spot syndrome on Wikipedia. We see exactly the same Wikipedia page. Right. But when Don goes on to Facebook and looks at his feed or I go into mine, we see something that is totally different. And if I go into Google and I start searching and I you know, change my search parameters, you know, as I, as I keep going through the thread, I will start to see different things from what Don is seeing, even though we are entering ostensibly the same search parameters. So and we don't even realize that there's a difference between the, you know, the, the way that the algorithm is, is subtly nudging us in different directions. And this is absolutely played out in the politics and in the pandemic response and, and, and actually everywhere. And, I, and it has come to the point after reading that, I, I, you know, seeing that, that documentary, I, I actually sincerely wondered, should I stop studying infectious diseases and spend the rest of my public health career fighting against this? Because this seems to be such a totally malignant force. And it is, well, I, it is not recognized as being so, so pervasive. You, you could fight against it, but you know, as a public health professional, you could also try and use this to your advantage because you, you could use this to get better, you know, the, the understanding that they have of, of how to get things in front of people that they will pay attention to and, and see, you could use that for public health good. I mean, what, one of the things that, that surprised me about that, that documentary was, and we didn't intend for this to be a, a, a segment about that documentary, but I think that's really interesting is, you know, the, one of the pieces of information that they have about you on social media is for every post you look at, how long did you look at? Yeah. And once they know that, they know what interests you. And so then they can then feed you more things that that look similar to that in certain ways. And so I think about every time I pause on a post now, I think to myself, I don't want to pause too long because they're going to get the idea that I like this and they're going to feed me a whole bunch of stuff. 
you could use that to try and, you know, influence what people are seeing. You know, if you can generate messages that are 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 catchy to people's eye and ways that people want to pause on them, you can then get people's feeds more full of messages like that. You sure could. But you know what? I think it's unethical to be doing that to people without them realizing it. And I think sure. this is this is one where we can't have the good without having the bad. And the downside is so down. You know, the fact that we just had an election and some, you know, number in the tens of millions believe that the election was fraudulent because of what they saw on YouTube and Facebook. That to me says, you know, we have moved from the information era to the misinformation era. Well, because I think there's one other there's one other factor there in that the president was pushing that pushing that lie. Well, he wasn't the only one. Yes. but let, let, let me just put in a plug for a colleague of ours who, who gave a talk that really bowled me over. Um, her name is Elaine Niswazi, and she is a faculty member in the Department of Global Health. And she, she blew me away because what, what, what she has found out how to do is to, is to capture the discussion that occurs on community radio in the most remote places in Africa and collect that information, the words that are being said and the discussion that is being generated and use artificial intelligence to try to deconstruct that and find out what are the core messages in her, in the, in, in her instance around public health. And in that way, you can reach deep into the lowest levels of community and understand what is the result of your – in a very real – tangible and real-time way, what is what what are the results of your public health messaging? And it just struck me as as a wonderful use of technology and a very powerful way to 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 really have us understand the in real time the effect that the public health messaging is, is having. So technology is not all bad. There are really yep. interesting, really innovative things that can be done. And, and I agree. All right, Chris. Chris, you want the last word? Well, I was just going to say I thought I agree. I thought Elaine's presentation was 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 awesome, and it was so clever. And I I you know wish wish I had thought of it. So good on you, Elaine. I would agree. I unfortunately couldn't attend that talk, but I I've seen many of her other talks, and they're fantastic. So let's move on to our last segment, which is our our favorite, our amazing and amusing. And I'm going to go first. So so you guys act as reviewers for journals. Do you do either of you serve on editorial boards? Hell no. I do not. <laughs> Interesting reaction, Chris. Um, so I was interested. There's this piece in, in, it was, it was in science. It's a, it's a, uh, I don't guess you wouldn't call it an editorial piece, but it's a more of a news story a bit, but went into some, some more detail. It's by uh, Kathleen O'Grady. This was in October 28th of 2020. The title is Delete Offensive Language, Change Recommendations. Some editors say it's okay to alter peer reviews. So this the story is a story that I'd actually heard about on uh, the podcast, The Black Goat. It's the story of, of uh, Professor Fiona Fiedler, 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 who is a researcher at the University of Melbourne. And she was asked to review a paper in which she submitted her review. And through a series of events, which I won't go into, it eventually came to light that when her reviews were transmitted to the authors, her reviews had been edited by the by the, the academic editor for the publication, maybe possibly the editor-in-chief, I'm not sure. So for example, the words very sympathetic had become generally sympathetic, she said, this one is a good example, and that turned into, this one still needs work, 
And so overall, she felt that her her review had been altered to give it a negative light when, in fact, she had given it a positive review. And this didn't I, I don't totally remember the details of how it came back to her. But so in response to this, they, they did a survey amongst journal editors to ask them, you know, when, if ever, they thought it was appropriate to edit reviews of journal articles. And, and here I just thought this was was pretty interesting. So the question, would it be acceptable to edit when a reviewer has used inappropriate or offensive language? By the way, this is a survey of about 300 people. 26% acceptable to edit, but only with reviewer's permission. 58% said acceptable to edit without the reviewer's permission. And 15% said not acceptable. Other things they asked about were things like when the reviewer has made inappropriate reference to the author's gender or age, 27% said okay to edit with the reviewer's permission, 56% okay to edit without. Other things they asked about when the reviewer has left in their comments to the editor, when the review has English language problems, when a reviewer identifies themselves in a blinded peer review, when there are spelling or grammatical errors, and finally, when the editor disagrees with the reviewer's recommendation. And that one, the last one, which I thought was the most interesting one, 11% said acceptable to edit, but only with the reviewer's permission. 8% said acceptable without the reviewer's permission, and 81% said no. Now, you could look at that as pretty you know, positive in that only 19% said it was acceptable ever to review someone's just because you you disagreed with them. But I, I was actually kind of surprised it was even that high. That really struck me as sort of antithetical to the idea of peer review. So I just hmm. thought it was was an interesting article. And, and you know, it, it sort of never struck me that editors would edit peer reviewers' comments. Mm -hmm. That happened to me with uh, what we'll call the local journal when I was reviewing <laughs> for them. And I had been asked to, to review a a paper on a topic that was very similar to a paper that I had published on quite recently before this article came out. And I felt that it was important to explain that I had a particular perspective on this because our own research had come up with very similar findings. And I wanted that to be part of the review and the editors cut it all out. Mm. And they also, yeah, I, I tried to unblind myself and they wouldn't let me. And so that was also part of it. And I was surprised. They wouldn't... They wouldn't let you unblind yourself? Yeah, I, I said, in full disclosure, my name is Dr. Dr. Dr., you know, and, and we have published, and I referenced the article. They took that whole thing out. That's weird. Interesting. Yeah. Don, you experienced anything like that? No, no, I haven't. Yeah. And I'm actually, kind of, I'm actually kind of surprised that that many editors would fall along those lines. I think it's, I personally think it's out of bounds. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be fine for an editor to comment on the review, I mean, I, I should say, by the way, the, the earlier ones where people make inappropriate comments, that I'm a little bit more sympathetic to. But but every other reason, I think it's appropriate for, you know, an editor can comment that they disagree with the reviews, but to edit the reviews just seems to me yeah, I agree. Wrong. And there are certain anyway, better yeah. ways of dealing with it, right? I mean, even, right. even in the extreme case of, you know, the reviewer has made inappropriate ad hominem or sexist comments, the editors could send that review back to the to the reviewer and say, this is unacceptable. Please revise exactly. the review. You know, but yep. to, to just change it without telling anyone. Yep. Agreed. Seems crossing the line to me. Agreed. All right, Chris, what do you what do you got for us? Well, things have been so depressing lately 
that I was delighted when the BBC came up with the new version of, of the classic TV series, All Creatures Great and Small. Mm. It's a new edition. It's utterly charming. Unfortunately, it's only the first season. So you get like eight episodes and then you're like, oh, what happens next? But you know what happens next. It doesn't matter because the whole the whole theme of All Creatures Great and Small is that there are these mini dramas, which are not very dramatic, but they're important life lessons. And it's it's peaceful and it's lovely. And it always kind of, you know, has a has a positive message. And they just feel great to watch. I totally loved the show. And I loved the books when I was growing up a kid and I read them to my kids when when they would listen to me and I, I just think it's you know it's interesting so in that because it had been a long time since I read the original book you know the the, the TV series takes place in this fictional town called Darrowby in the Yorkshires and so I you know immediately go on my cell phone and I'm like googling you know Darrowby and there's no Darrowby in the, in the, in, in the Yorkshires mm. there is no town of Darrowby so then I was like oh okay so it's partly fictionalized so I you know then went to my usual source which is Wikipedia and started reading about James Harriet. And I learned mm-hmm. that there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here, which I was unaware of, which is that, first of all, the, the All Creatures Great and Small series, the title comes from an Anglican hymn. Did you know that? Which is called All Things Bright and Beautiful. Oh, I, I'm aware of the hymn, but I did not realize that I didn't make the connection. Yeah, the first verse of the hymn uh, reads as all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Which I thought mm-hmm. was charming. Okay. Yeah. And then I went to uh, iTunes and I downloaded the song. And if you want, I can play you a little bit of it. It's quite pretty, but I don't have to. Nick won't let you. You won't let me? Okay, fair enough. So anyway, it turned out that James Harriet was his pen name. The, 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 the gentleman in question was actually named James Alfred White. And most of the other details from the story are roughly true, except that it took place in, the, in a village of called Thirsk, T-H-I-R-S-K, in the Yorkshires. And that he basically was, you know, as laid out in the, in, in the, in the series and in the books, joined as a junior veterinary assistant to this senior veterinary surgeon, and then took over the practice when the senior surgeon went off to fight in World War II as part of the Royal Air Force. And when he came back, he was made a partner. And then he, James Harriet, i.e. James Alfred White, also volunteered for the Royal Air Force and served for a brief time, but was discharged honorably because he had an anal fistula, out of all things, and was deemed unable to fly because of this. Anyway, I thought all of this was, was, was quite fascinating, and um, I just wanted to mention that. Very cool. Don, what do, you, what do you got for us? Go ahead. So I have an article to report that is actually quite similar to um, our first section in in mm. this podcast today, okay, and uh, there there are a couple of things that get swapped out. So this is a, a, um, uh, a research study that was the principal investigator is Oriel Willett. It it appeared in the two thousand November two twenty issue of the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, and the reason I'm bringing this up is in, in part similar to what Chris was talking about in terms of his bias for the outcome of the study in our first section. So this came out of the Food Science and uh, Nutrition Department in Iowa State, and it was a prospective cohort of 1,787 aging adults from 46 to 77 years of age in the UK that were collected similar to the first study we talked about, at, at, but this this time it's the UK Biobank. Mm-hmm. And I think it's set up similar we, to We, in um, fact, we to, have to what done we studies – We've done studies, uh, reviewed studies yes. before in segment one from the UK Biobank. Yep. Yes. 
Right. So basically they did a food frequency questionnaire and then they did a, what, what they call a fluid intelligence test, which basically was a way to provide an in-time snapshot of an individual's ability to think on the fly. And they did a similar analysis to the study that we talked about, and they had baseline information on fresh fruit, dried fruit, raw vegetable, salad, oily fish, lean fish, all the rest of it. But the conclusions that they came up with in terms of a protective effect of the consumption of various foods types against age-related cognitive problems, even later in life, was that cheese was by far the most effective. Cheese. And then the set cheese, which just blew me away, and I love this study for that reason. Despite everything I said in the first portion of this podcast. Was this the fondue study? (laughs) This could have been. (laughs) The daily consumption of alcohol, particularly red wine, was also related to improvements in cognitive function. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about chocolate? Did that sneak in there? No, no, I don't know that they actually looked at chocolate. but Specifically Reese's peanut butter cups? is that cheese, red wine, and probably crackers also are okay. have a beneficial effect on your on your thinking later in life. Oh, I know what I'm I know what I'm doing tonight. I was going to say having having not yeah. read the paper, I uh, I completely agree with this research. Totally. <laughs> totally. Well, so that's the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at PopHealthyX or tweet me at, at ProfMattFox or Don at, at DTheo1 or Chris at ID.Gill. Or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and having the greatest memory such that he remembers every single amazing and amusing I have ever done. And <laughs> you won't know it because it's been edited out, but probably I think for the third time now, I have repeated the same thing and Nick was there to save me. Well, that was Thanks because, for joining us. More cheese. More cheese so and amazing. red wine. And it was so amusing. <laughs> it deserves repeat. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you download our next episode. <laughs>